Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today I'm joined by Des Keeney. Des was referred to me by Katrina Woods from episode 89, and Des shares a trip around Cape Horn, a few of his favorite places in Ireland, and how he's overcoming one of life's challenges to continue paddling. His is a great story of perseverance. Before we get to our chat with Des, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and as a coach. You'll find everything from basic strokes and safety to paddling in tides, surfing, coaching, documentaries. It's all in one place. So if you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com, use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout, and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. With that, enjoy today's episode with Des Keeney. Welcome, Des. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue today. No problem, John. It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. So tell us a little bit about your paddling history. Oh, my paddling history started a very long time ago, back in the 1970s uh, when I was in school. I was in a boarding school in Dublin, which was happened to be near the River Liffey. So we used to go uh, paddling on that occasionally. And it was in old style kayaks like uh, Percy Blanchford plywood boats. So at that stage, then I got to build a fiberglass boat in in the college. And uh, I still have that so many years later. And I used to do a little bit of paddling on the West Coast here, but very little really. And then I didn't really do very much until the early 1990s when I wanted to get back on the water and was looking for a reasonably cheap way of doing it. And uh, sea paddling seemed like a good idea. And at that stage, uh, I got out with the local club near Dublin and I realized how little I actually knew about it. Uh, being in a slalom boat and paddling along a sea cliff and not being able to steer it. So the whole thing, uh, I suddenly realized how much I needed to learn. And I started from there and I've been keeping going since. Now you're in the Dublin area, correct? I was in the Dublin area. Uh, I spent my, I'm from the Northwest in North Leitrim. And I spent my working life in and around Dublin. So that's where I was doing most of my paddling at the time. I did quite a bit on the West Coast when time and travel would allow, uh, because it's such a wonderful environment to paddle in. But a lot of my paddling, including the professional stuff I was doing, was in and around the Dublin area. So tell us, what what's it like paddling in Dublin? It's a lot more interesting than you might think. When you push off from the beach, you're immediately out in a coastal environment, even though there are houses and buildings overlooking the coast. But you're in quite a dynamic coastal environment with cliffs and islands and headlands and lots of interests. And the good thing about the East Coast is that there's a significant tide that runs up and down the Irish Sea. So you can get up to three to four knots in places. And particularly around Dublin, there are a couple of areas where there's lots of tidal interest. So every day that you go out can be different. And it, it's never the same thing, depending on what the tide and the wind are doing. I formerly lived in the Chicago area and urban paddling was, was really quite fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the urban paddling uh, in Dublin. Well, there's, there's such a contrast because the little harbor that we used to paddle from mostly, it's in a very built up area. You can't get property there for, unless you have a significant amount of money. Yet at the same time, there's free launching, so you can take the kayak out and within seconds of being outside the harbour, you're in a rock hopping environment. You have about a 20 minute paddle down to the nearest island and there are tidal races off it. So you completely forget that you're in an environment that, which is essentially urban. And what I used to find about that, there was almost a, a great form of, of escapism in that I could leave my troubles behind in the harbour and once I was out on the water I was concentrating on what I was doing I was looking at the environment there was a great seal population there and a lot of wild seabirds as well so it was a fantastic environment to totally take you away from whatever your current troubles might have been. 
Now, you mentioned uh, your professional uh, work as a paddler. So tell us a little bit about that. I used to work for an American technology company and I was getting to my early 40s and begin to think what I would like to do with the rest of my working life. And it didn't actually include working in an office anymore. So in 2003, I set up Deep Blue Sea Kayaking, which was operating out of Dublin. And we took people out from then until 2014 professionally. And it was originally conceived as take people from beginner level up to the top level here, which would be the equivalent to what used to be five star. For us, it was level five. But come the recession in 2008, that really sort of changed into taking people out for half day sessions. And that went fine. And we introduced an awful lot of people to sea kayaking. And hopefully we gave them a good time without actually scaring the pants off them. So that was the, the, the ethos of it. We, we did do courses from and mostly dinner because that's where the bread and butter was and that's what kept us going through the winter. Um, but we also did higher level courses and really enjoyed those. Now, now you've got some pretty impressive journeys under your belt. So I know Cape Horn was one of those. Tell us about Cape Horn. Yeah, Cape Horn was a, a sort of a trip of a lifetime, really. Um, it was conceived by David Walsh. who David was the man who wrote Ilon, which is the book on Irish islands and I think his great uncle or his grand uncle had gone around Cape Horn in a sailing clipper so Dave wanted to repeat it in a sea kayak because that was what he did. So there were four of us who ended up on that trip. There was myself, there was Dave, there was Fred Cooney who was Dave's paddling buddy during the writing of Ilan. They used to do all the trips out to the islands together and there was Paul Butcher, who had also paddled quite a lot with them. And uh, he was a, a paramedic in the ambulance service, which is good to have on a trip like that. And that was really where it started. And uh, it came together then in our winter here of 2008. So we went in January 2008, which was obviously the summer in the South, the South Atlantic. Did you bring boats with you or did you rent boats there? We didn't bring boats. It it really wasn't practical. We would have had to buy the boats and it probably would have taken the guts of a year to get them there and a year to get them back. So we actually managed, we managed to rent very good boats from an Argentinian company who got them down to Ushuaia, down on the southern end of Argentina. So those were the boats that we used. They were good quality fiberglass boats with absolutely no issue. They were very comfortable. They had rudders which was a bit strange to us in Ireland because we're mostly skeg people, though we didn't have any bias or anything like that. We were quite happy with that. And uh, the boats worked great. Just out of curiosity, I know that there's uh, that continuing debate between paddlers of rudder versus skeg. And uh, yeah, as a, as a yeah. skeg paddler, did, you, uh, did, you, did it convert you? <laughs> um, no, but I've, I've always been quite happy with either. I don't really mind so long as I have one or other for those. Uh, there are only occasional times really where you need them, where you've got the, the wind coming in over your shoulder and the boat wants to turn up into the wind. So I've never had particularly strong feelings. I've been happy with the skegs um, that we've used and that's what I still use. But I'm certainly... I would be happy to use rudders because anything that gives you a bit of extra steering and allows you to paddle forward most efficiently, then that can only be good. Sure. Each has its purpose. So. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the trip itself. So you left from Ush Ushuaia? Yeah, we left from Ush Ushuaia, which is in Argentina, and then we crossed over to uh, Puerto Navarino, which is in Chile, and we went through a customs and gear check there which was interesting it was like we were setting out on an expedition to the south pole but and i think they, they did a very very comprehensive gear check up we had and i think we were okay for everything except for an anchor and they let us off with that so the, i mean there's good reason for it the trip is very exposed there are no rescue services and the chilean Armada, which is the Chilean Navy, they don't want to be picking up people just because they've headed out on a whim. So it's all fairly tightly controlled. We also had to have a, a yacht with us, which a little bit spoiled what we would like to have done. 
but they wouldn't let us out without it. So that was fine. And it also meant that we could concentrate on the paddling because we had the comfort of sleeping in the yacht every night. And we got, uh, you know, we had our meals on the yacht as well. So having the boat was brilliant and it made it much easier. We weren't in the first flush of youth. Uh, we we're all in our 40s or 50s at that stage, I think. So it was really nice to have the comfort of the, the escort boat. Now, it, it, it wasn't with us that closely. And when push came to shove, it's a little bit questionable how useful it would have been if it had been caught out in really bad conditions. Because trying to get from um, a kayak into a yacht, if we had been caught out in force eight or stronger, could have been interesting. And I'm not sure both people and boat would have been recovered. Mm-hmm. So there was a very comprehensive check in Puerto Navarino. And uh, after that, then we were allowed to set off. All right. So although that changed the complexion of the trip, it certainly sounds like it didn't ruin the trip in any way. No, not at all. The The objective was never to be Cape Horners, as in paddling from the 49th parallel and back up again or anything like that. We would just wanted to go on a good paddling trip around the Cape and experience the environment and the area. And uh, that actually added to it. It took away a lot of the what would be the hard work in setting up camp and feeding ourselves and carrying the food and the water and all that type of thing. So it worked really well. Yeah, it does sound like a brilliant option. So. Yeah. So tell us about the experience of the paddle itself. Well, the, the paddle itself, um, we spent about a week or 10 days, maybe no, maybe a week in actually getting out to the Cape Horn archipelago because Cape Horn itself and the islands around it, oh, it varies from maybe 12 to 20 mile crossing across open water to get out to that archipelago. So we had a very interesting paddle around Isla Navarino and down through the Murray Channel and so on. The, the Murray Channel used to be closed off by the Argentinian Navy, and uh, but thankfully we were allowed to get down. So we were uh, able to see our first sea lions and a lot of the wildlife down there, like the albatross and the, we were starting to, a bit further down, we were starting to see condors and so on, which is very alien to us Northern Hemisphere people. Also, it was great for, uh, in that one of the guys on the crew in the yacht was a naturalist so was able to give us the local information on all the wildlife. And David Walsh is a bird expert, so he was uh, very competent in that area as well. So it really added to the, the, the whole interest, being able to see the sea lions and the bird life. So we spent about the, the first week on our way down and then we had a decision to make on how to get out to the Cape Horn archipelago. We could have gone west uh, towards False Cape Horn and out the Hardy Peninsula. But the trouble there is that you have quite high mountains and the skipper of the boat wasn't that keen because when he moors in the bays, you can get very, very strong and very almost instant catabatic winds coming down off the mountains. Like even no matter where we were at night, the yacht was double anchored and he would also run two lines out and tie them to trees or rocks on the shore because of the danger of actually just being blown off your anchor with these catabatic winds. So we actually went further east, which left us with about a 12 to 15 mile crossing to the Cape Hornet archipelago. And we had our first little, I wouldn't say wobble, but we were setting out on that and the forecast was a little bit uncertain. It started off nicely. We were getting up to maybe, it was only about a force three or something, a little, little bit of swell. And then it got up to a force five. So we actually said, no, we'll leave it until another day. So it was the next day before we got across. Got across. The big difference down in the part of the world, John, is the speed that the weather systems come in. Like Cape Horn is actually only the same distance south of the equator as uh, the island of Islay in Scotland is north, which is only a little bit off Malin Head on the north of Ireland. So it's roughly at the same latitude. But the difference with Cape Horn is that if you paddle east with the prevailing winds, uh, you're not going to hit any land until you get back 22 and a half kilometers later to Cape Horn again. So 
the difference in the meteorological situation is extreme and there is a real danger of very strong winds developing very quickly and we actually found that out almost found it out the hard way later on the trip so we were very respectful of the weather the captain of the boat was uh, very experienced he had 20 years on the water there and he was good at the weather but don't forget this is 15 years ago so there weren't the same meteorological services available to us at that time as there are now so it was a little bit harder to tell what weather was coming in he got it and we got it right all of the time except for once and that i think was pretty good going for that area so now you say got it right all except for once and you mentioned strong winds later so i'm assuming those coincide uh yes (laughs) (laughs) They, they did indeed we got out to the Cape Horn Archipelago without much trouble and we got out to our jumping off point which was a little bit uh, west of Cape Horn so we would be any wind that was going to be there would be behind us uh, that was the plan so we set out one morning at about half six in the morning and it was a wet drizzly morning and we were quite sheltered where we'd been and it was blown only maybe about a force three. So we went out through a gap uh, between the islands and out into the more open water. And the yacht was maybe half an hour behind us and the conditions started to rise and they kept on rising. And when it got about to a force five or six, we were still reasonably close to the island. So we pulled in behind a little spur of rock in the hope that it was just a a squall and it would die down. The forecast had been light to moderate and that didn't quite happen. And it was coming out of the west, the wind. And basically, if the wind had gone round to the south at all, then our little hiding place would have been completely exposed and we would have been stuck. So at this stage, it was getting up to about a four seven, lots of white caps. The swell was building and we decided to take the boats up onto the little spur of rock that we were on, which was quite handy because we could actually get up the rock and have a good look at the sea conditions and wait and see what would happen. So we did that for an hour or two. And at this stage, the yacht was had come out. It couldn't get in anywhere near us because Down in that part of the world, the kelp can grow to about 30 metres and kelp and the motor of a boat, the propeller and uh, rocks close by, they really just don't add up. It wouldn't be good. So they weren't able to come in close. The, The boat was plunging up and down in what were now big sea conditions, constant breaking waves and so on. So we decided to climb up the cliff from where we were, stow the boats there and walk back over the island, which would we could get back basically to where we had started from. And that was what we did. And we stowed the boats, tied them down to every rock that was conceivable, climbed up the cliff and walked back over the island, which was, it was really interesting in itself because down there, you don't get trees in the way that we would know them in the Northern Hemisphere. The trees are maybe about a foot to two feet high because of the wind. And they're all leaning in one direction. So you're walking over this mini forest up to your knees in dry suit. And I had the joy of carrying the first aid bag, which considering we had a paramedic with us, it weighed about as much as the kayak. So um, <laughs> that, that kept me kept me sweating in the dry suit. But it was grand. We we got back and there was there was there was no problems. Uh, we got back to the yacht and so on. But I would reckon that the wind must have been gusting probably over seventy knots. I've I had an anemometer out at one stage near home one time on the side of the hill and um, I was experiencing seventy three knots or something and it was at least as strong, very strong indeed. The sea conditions were horrendous. I hate to think what might have happened if we had continued because trying to get ourselves and the kayaks back onto the yacht would, I don't know if it would have been a runner. So we were, we got away with it and it was grand and um, the wind blew all that night and it blew the next morning and then it 
died pretty much as quickly as it had arisen. So we were able to get off in the afternoon of the following day. So a 70 knot wind is one you definitely don't want to be out in. No, definitely <laughs> not. There's excitement and adrenaline and then there's up into the red zone and that we would definitely have been way beyond our adventure zone at that stage. Well, it gives you a great story though, that's for certain. <laughs> yeah. So after that, so you did you have the opportunity to round the Cape? Yes, we did. I mean, it was there was, there was a fairly high degree of anxiety in, on my part, simply because of what had happened the day before. But we actually didn't get away till about half four in the afternoon. So it was quite late and we would probably have uh, four to five hours paddling in front of us. So we were pushing the, the light window, but the conditions were good and we were starting to get a bit short on time. So wasn't the deciding factor but because the conditions were good we thought we had the right amount of light just about and we had headed off and it all went fine the uh, the interesting thing about cape horn is that when you arrive on the rest western side you run into cathedral rocks which are these huge pyramids of rocks which are hugely scenic they're really attractive the only trouble is because of the swell the day before there was quite a bit of clopatis um, coming off the island. So that definitely kept us focused for the trip around. The other thing about going around the island was that there was really, uh, I, I was a bit surprised because I'd looked at it on Google Earth, which was all that was available at that time. I'd looked at it quite closely about the headlands and so on and thought I had a good idea what they were. But it turned out that there were five or six headlands, some of them with offline rocks and large boomers uh, extending quite a way out to sea. So the concentration between the clopatis and the boomers offshore, uh, it absolutely never dropped. And the swell was quite big. Uh, I think at one stage I was reckoning it was about four to five meters. Um, the wind was starting to get up as we were getting around the island. It wasn't a problem, but the swell was big enough that the wind dropped when we were in the troughs and was helping us then when we were on the crest. And the crests were all very benign. They weren't breaking or anything like that. But certainly the headlands and the offshore rocks and the boomers were focusing the concentration. When I say boomers, I mean uh, waves that break uh, every so often. They don't break all the time because it's only when the big sets of waves come through that they actually feel the bottom and, and break. But it's not somewhere you want to be caught. Yeah, and a four to five meter swell will certainly create some big boomers. Yeah, there were, yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we largely stayed well reasonably offshore, but it was close enough to get a real sense of the island. So that, that was really nice. So when, when you get around, there's a landing place on the northern side of the island. Uh, the island is constantly manned at that stage anyway by the Chilean Armada and is heavily mined because in the 70s there was a, a row basically with the Argentinians about who owned what islands and there was a fear of invasion and all that type of strife. Um, so the island is still mined, but there are cleared pathways from the landing up to the buildings where the Chilean Armada people have, you know, they lived there with their families for, I don't know how long it was. It could have been six months stints or three months stints. I can't really remember, but they're permanently in residence there. So we got into the landing and it was getting dark. So we basically didn't get up onto the island that evening, uh, we came back the next day and got up and got to see all the the architecture and up there, which was really quite interesting. It's such a remote area. It's they see virtually nobody these days because all the commercial traffic goes through the Panama Canal. So there's very little traffic uh, going around there. So that was it really. When we got around, it was quite a relief and it was a real sense of having achieved something. And we really enjoyed the experience of getting up on the island. It was very special. So is there a requirement to land at the tip of the Cape and, and stop at that center or? No, absolutely not. Certainly, I don't know how things are these days, but certainly then there wasn't. It was just something we very much wanted to do. There's a church up there. There's buildings. There was a paddle left by some kayakers who had been around a number of years earlier and had paddled from Puentes Arenas and uh, further up in 
in Argentina. So it was really nice just to see the place and there's a magnificent structure and basically a negative uh, carving up on the headland of uh, albatrosses and it's just extraordinary to see it and really nice place to visit. The only only thing was that a cruise ship were ferrying in passengers at the time so oh. we, were, we were overcome with Americans and Europeans and so on coming up with their life jackets off the ribs so that felt a bit surreal but we enjoyed <laughs> it it was nice I think they gave the the kayaks a somewhat funny looks but other than that it was great so there you are having a, a remote experience in one of the most remote places in the world and all of a sudden people start flooding in yeah that's it <laughs> that certainly does change the complexion of it it does yeah <laughs> well that sounds like an amazing trip sounds like a sounds yeah like it was beautiful. great it was, it was what kind of planning resources did you did you use for that trip? Um, it was quite limited what was available. We did manage to get a chart. Uh, the tides aren't hugely significant. When one thinks of the Atlantic meeting the Pacific and so on, you assume that there'd be big big tidal movement, but there isn't really. Um, it wouldn't. We wouldn't have experienced anything above maybe one knot, except in the channels, and that was all very predictable. Basically, all I could look at was the chart and Google Earth at that time. And after that, we had a, had a good planning sessions with the skipper of the yacht. They had been out there many times. They knew the area very well, and we leaned on them a lot. And it worked fine. It was great. So there was the, the planning that we had to do was really quite limited. Now, you also paddled New Zealand. Yeah, that was... Um, that was a fun trip. We, I was going over there for a holiday. It was always somewhere I wanted to visit. And I'd managed to coincide it with the Cask Symposium in Wellington in that year. And I really enjoyed it. It was, there was amazing contrasts between what the European situation was and what they were doing in New Zealand. And there were very strong positives on both sides. In New Zealand, the boats were all ruddered, and that's fine. It was just interesting to... The only skeg boat I saw was a cedar strip boat, which had been hand-built by somebody, and that had a skeg in it. So everything else was ruddered, and that was fine. They also had a really developed uh, professional guiding setup, which the, at the time in Ireland, there was virtually none of that. I think there was only one or two people in Ireland who were giving courses of any description in sea kayaking at that time. And they had a very professional setup. We went for a trip on the north coast of the South Island, which was really scenic and it was lovely and warm. And the guide took out a picnic lunch and laid a tablecloth on the beach and fed us in the middle of the day and we had sails for the downwind part in the end we were picked up in boats to bring us it, it was a one-way trip all downwind of course which was really well planned yeah and when we were going uh, we were led down onto a long uh, low-lying beach and told to wait and the next thing a tractor with a trailer with the kayaks on board was brought out and they drove put us up in the back drove us into the water and floated us off. It was just brilliant. <laughs> and the, the level of care was far surpassing anything I had ever experienced at the time. So it, it was really exceptional, the, the setup they had. And uh, I got paddling uh, with a, a friend of mine called John Kirk Anderson down near Christchurch. And that was lovely, just to get out in uh, near Littleton, where... The Antarctic expeditions had gone out from uh, in the early 20th century. So that was that was really nice. The other thing was their amateur organization was CASC, which is the Kiwi Association of Sea Kayakers. But they had no qualification levels the way the British and the Irish did at the time. So that was quite different. They had guiding uh, courses and qualifications for the professional guides, but they didn't have personal qualifications. I'm sure that's changed at this stage, but it was interesting looking at the contrast between the Northern and Southern hemispheres, uh, quite exceptional. It was great at that symposium to meet so many people like Paul Caffron and the likes were there. So that was, was really good and uh, brilliant sea kayakers and uh, it was a pleasure to be there. 
Now, what was the uh, what was the environment like, and how did that differ from Ireland? It was a lot warmer, which was okay. nice. <laughs> <laughs> you never can be. It's very seldom. There might be two or three days in the year here where you would paddle without a, a cag. Whereas down there, particularly on the South Island, it was that, that was fairly normal, except when the weather got up, obviously. But it, it was it was nice that it was it's a long way. It's a lot. It's a lot closer to the equator than we are here. So it wasn't really surprising. Uh, the North Island is obviously warmer than the South, like there were still snow caps on the peaks of the mountains in the South Island. But it was it it was a lovely paddling environment, sheltered water, exposed water. Uh, we were only doing it at a, at a very basic level. But when I've read about some of the trips and the circumnavigations down there, it's just exceptional, an exceptional place to go paddling. It certainly sounds it. Both sound like amazing trips, both Cape Cape Horn and uh, and New Zealand. So yeah. Now tell us a little bit about paddling in your home waters. The paddling in Ireland is is exceptional. I mean, our our mountains aren't quite as exposed as or as big as they would be in New Zealand, but there's a lot of them, and all of our coastline, with the exception of some places on the east coast, is heavily indented. So there's loads of bays and islands. You can get open crossings, like if you're doing a circumnavigation of Ireland. Your open crossing, the, the, the longest is probably going to be about 30 nautical miles. Um, there are lots of other ones down in the southwest. It's like those fingers of a hand reaching out into the Atlantic. So those headlands can be quite challenging. The bays can be really interesting. There's lots of islands on them. And it's the same all, most of the way up the west coast. You have a real choice of paddling conditions given the weather, or you can have sheltered water either. And, and you mentioned you're in the northwest? Yeah, I'm in the northwest. The, there's a bay up there called Donegal Bay, which is about 40 miles deep and maybe about the same across the mouth of it. It's like somebody has taken a, a bite out of the island. <laughs> and uh, that's where up at the top of that. There's not actually much sheltered paddling here. It's the, the, there's very, There are very few islands in the bay itself. It's quite exposed. There are some places with, with somewhat sheltered water, which is nice. Further north of us, then we have Donegal, which has lots of big cliffs, headlands, uh, lots of wildlife. They get loads of bask- basking sharks during the summer, which is quite an extraordinary experience when you run into them. Like I have looked at a fin of a, the dorsal fin of a basking shark, and then I've seen another one about eight or nine meters behind it. And wonder thinking about two sharks, but it's actually the one. It's just the tail fin of, of the basking shark is showing out of the water at the same time. Huge animals, and they they feed with their mouth open, which is a bit disconcerting if you happen to be looking in that direction. So they have this huge gaping maw to take in the the water and filter the plankton out of it. But they come to feed uh, in during the summer months and Donegal to the northwest of the country is uh, has huge number of basking sharks and they're easily available uh, visible i should say from the shore as well okay and this and this summer we've had some humpback whales in Donegal bay which was really nice and that that's a first so i'm not sure if it's due to warming waters or just the the food happened to be in the bay but they were there for about three weeks and that was a fairly exceptional experience which again was visible from the shores. Sounds spectacular. What would you say your your favorite paddle is in the area? Oh, that's very hard to say, John. (laughs) So many options. (laughs) Yeah, I've had some, I mean, I've had magnificent paddles everywhere. Like up to a couple of years ago, we used to go up to a symposium on the very northern peninsula, the Inishon Peninsula in Donegal, which was run by a company called Inish Adventures. That was, I'd just like to give uh, the owner of that, Adrian Harkin, a mention because he ran some really challenging symposiums. He's taught so many people in the Northwest about river kayaking and sea kayaking. And some of my most, uh, quote, interesting, unquote, trips, uh, leading trips have been up at that symposium because it's a very exposed coastline. 
The difficult thing for Adrian is that he now has motor neuron disease, so is confined to a wheelchair. But it's just I know there are a huge number of people in the, the north of Ireland who would uh, thank him for his contribution. But the, the symposia that he ran up in that area were exceptional. It's around uh, Malin Head, which is the very northernmost point of Ireland, which has very strong tides, big sea conditions coming in from the Atlantic or coming down from the north, depending on the weather. And even when there are southerlies blown, because of the length of the peninsula, you can get a big rolling sea coming going up the cliff line. So really exposed paddling, very interesting and uh, great for all levels paddlers. So we've had some wonderful trips there. Uh, further west, there are quite a lot of islands, which again, you can weave in and out of and you can pick your weather and you can pick your conditions as to whether you want rough stuff or exposed paddling or sheltered paddling. Then further south below us, you have the Galway Mayo close coast. Again, there are lots and lots of islands, deeply indented bays. Uh, there's the one fjord that we have in Ireland called Kilry Fjord is down there, and that gives about uh, 10 nautical miles of paddling up, the, up and down the fjord, and you have islands offshore from that. So this wonderful coastline from the point of view of island hopping and being able to pick your conditions and being able to do a circular trip back to your landing point. So amazing paddling in all those areas. One region I didn't mention was down in the southwest where they have wonderful islands like the Fastnet, which is, if you're paddling from shore, can be up to 20 uh, nautical miles offshore. And then you're going up to the Skelligs, which is an old monastic settlement. And we had the pleasure of being able to uh, stay there in the beehive huts, which the monks used to use one early summer a couple of years ago. And that was a wonderful experience. It's essentially about a 800 foot rock protruding out of the Atlantic. And it probably got well known for the Star Wars war series. I think some of it was there. But to me, it's much more memorable as a as a monastic settlement. I think that's the wonder. And then from there, you can get up to the Blaskets, which are some of the most westerly islands in Europe. And there's a real sense of being out there when, when you're paddling out around the Blaskets and being able to camp on some of them. And that is just wonderful. There was um, a wee, wee poem that um, Seamus Heaney, our Nobel laureate, wrote. It's a little bit of verse. Uh, would you like to hear it? Sure. It's basically, it's called The Given Note. And it's about a fiddler that's a, a a violin player who plays Irish music uh, they're called fiddlers over here and he was out on the blaskets and got this tune the tune is also known in Irish as Portnabuki which means uh, song of the fairies okay and you mentioned that you said the given and I didn't quite catch that the, the given note the uh, given in note that the, in that the tune came in off off the sea so it goes like this on the most westerly blasket in a dry stone hut, he got this air out of the night. Strange noises were heard by others who followed. Bits of a tune coming in on loud weather, though nothing like melody. He blamed their fingers and ear as unpractised, their fiddling easy, for he had gone alone into the island and brought back the whole thing. The house throbbed like his full violin. Whether he calls it spirit music or not, I don't care. For he took it out of wind, off mid-Atlantic, still he maintains from nowhere. It comes off the bow gravely and rephrases itself into the air. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Yeah, you mentioned some of those uh, those iconic paddles, the uh, the Blaskets, Melonhead, the Skelligs, Fastnet, um, all some of the most iconic paddles uh, in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm so glad that I got to take them off my bucket list, my major bucket list was actually paddles around Ireland and some of those amazing places like the Fastnote was known as the teardrop of Ireland because when the emigrant ships were going out from the south coast that would be the the last there's, there's a lighthouse built there in 1905 um, which is still standing and operating as good as the day it was made but that would be the last sight that the emigrants would see when they were heading out in 
in, in the ships on the way to the States and Canada and so on. So amazing place to go and visit and never quiet and never still. And how they used to do the lighthouse transfers in those days by British boy. It was just amazing. Lighthouse keepers hanging off ropes and going down to the tenders was incredible. And it was a real privilege to be able to get out there. Very nice. Yeah, it definitely sounds like endless options. Yeah. So you've had a setback in the past few years. Tell us a little bit about that and how it's affected your paddling and how you're overcoming. Oh, yeah. Um, I had two setbacks, really. One was uh, sight loss. So we finished running courses full-time with uh, Deep Blue in 2014. And I was starting a, a sight loss journey at that stage, uh, which has developed since. It's a condition I inherited from my mother's, and so I know roughly how it goes. But essentially, I've now lost my central vision, which uh, from the point of view of navigating in a sea kayak isn't really the best. So that I stopped driving in 2016, and I, I still had a little bit of central vision. I do have peripheral vision, but the central vision went about... Uh, in 2021 so i've been without it since so my days of uh, doing a transit or map reading are over which uh, i'm not sorry about the first one but i really miss map reading uh, that was something i really enjoyed and also being able to navigate on the water is quite difficult independently i use technology to help uh, where i live i'm on the shores of a lake which is about 13 kilometers long and about four to five wide and has half a dozen islands. So there's plenty of interesting paddling and I can't get too far lost because I'm going to bump into something at some stage. <laughs> but I, I use a system called, which was, use, was developed by Microsoft uh, called Soundscape. They have now stopped uh, working on that, but they have made it open source. So other people have taken the, the source code and started using it. So it's still called Soundscape. And what it allows me to do is to set beacons. So if I'm, for example, at the pier down the road from our house, I can set a beacon at the entrance to the, to the harbour there. Then if I'm paddling out, I can, with my phone, I can search for the beacon and using stereo headphones, it allows me to find the right direction. And it does that when I'm pointing towards the beacon, there's a ping in my headphones. If I'm pointing to the left of the beacon, there's a thumping noise in my right earphone. And if I'm pointing to the right of the beacon, there's a thumping noise in my left earphone. So it's telling me to turn left or to turn right or that you're on target. And it also gives the distance to the beacon as well. So by setting beacons on various points on the lake and out around the islands, I can now navigate independently using those beacons and I can I, I know where I am any time. And it, it's great, but it's still just using technology and you're still dependent on your battery on, on the phone. So not wonderful for coastal hopping, but if I want to do that, I do it with people and stick close to one person that I trust. That is that is fascinating technology. Yeah, it is. I, I, I mean, my mother had this condition as well. And, you know, all she had available to her was a reading book. And the unit was about the size of, uh, I don't know if you have concrete blocks where you live, but yep. a concrete block is a big, heavy lump of concrete. And it was about the size of four of those and about the same weight. So if she wanted to move it around the house, she nearly needed a wheelbarrow to carry it around. Whereas um, everything now that I use is on my iPhone. So it's absolutely fantastic, the advances that technology have made. And I have a degree of independence that uh, my mother never could have had. And just being able to go out on the water and be able to find my way around, brilliant. Now, the problem is that when your hands get wet, they don't work terribly well on a touch screen. So that's a challenge, but there is a, a way of doing that called voice control, which allows one to speak the command. So you might say, touch the enter button or touch this or tap that, and it'll actually press the button that you want. But there's a little bit more learning that I have to do on that to be able to do it completely hands-free and just by voice. But the, the, the freedom that it gives me and the, 
the idea that I can go and do it um, is just wonderful. So what I want to do this autumn is I would like to do a night paddle on my own around two or three of the islands in the lake and just to be able to do it and to enjoy. I used to love night being out on night paddles, but obviously now my night vision is completely gone. So that will be an interesting experience and a real trust in the technology. Well, it's amazing that that adaptive technology is available that can, that can help you continue uh, something you love. Yeah, very much so. So um, how can listeners reach you? They can reach me by email is probably the easiest. My email address is deskeeney1 at gmail.com. And that's spelled D-E-S-K-E-A-N-E-Y and the number one at Gmail. And uh, happy to respond to any queries. For any paddlers out there who are suffering sight loss, I'm quite happy to have a chat. Or if there's anybody who wants to talk about the various regions of Ireland, um, I'd be happy to do that as well. So one, one final question for you, and that is who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? The person that w- would have had a major influence on my kayaking back in the early days and ever since um, would be a man called David Walsh, who has written the book called Ilan, which is the book on Irish islands. Ilan in Irish is island. And that was the name he gave to the book. He's done two editions of it. The second edition is obviously for sale in paperback. Also, the website that he uses is completely free. The text version of Ilan is completely free on the website. So if anybody is coming to Ireland, you don't have to buy the book. You can just look up the website and you get all the information. And he has written that book over the last 30 years. And it's still ongoing, though he's run out of islands, more or less, except for a couple of small ones and I think he's somewhere over 600 at the moment um, so every significant island and the interest it might have for kayakers between camping places landing places whether there's water or not and where you might launch from to get to get there are all covered so it's an extraordinary publication excuse me he's put a massive amount of effort into it he also put a massive amount of effort into sea hiking in the Dublin area when I was starting in the early 90s. And other than, for, other than for him, I wouldn't have had a group to paddle with in those days. And as you know yourself, it's so important to have peer paddlers that you can get out with and practice what you've learned. So he also introduced me to thinking differently about how you might solve problems like rock landings or rescues or towing and that type of thing. So ever since I've been trying to develop different ways of doing, of carrying out these skills and a lot of it is thanks to him. So I think you would find him a really interesting person to talk to. He has a wealth of knowledge on sea kayaking in Ireland, on the bird life and obviously the islands of Ireland. All right. Well, I can speak from experience uh... I have a copy of Ilan. Thank you, Kevin O'Sullivan, for sending that copy to me. It is a wonderful read, and uh, it's just something I I enjoy just sitting down and just going through it and imagining all those places um, that someday I will have the opportunity to paddle. So thank you very much for the referral. No problem, John. We'd be delighted to see you over here if you ever get to make it. Now, you mentioned one other thing in there. I just want to touch on that for just a second. Uh, You were talking about rescues and, and other sorts of skills. Do you still have an opportunity to practice that with the sight loss? No, I don't really. Um, I was a a fairly high level instructor, but obviously when um, you can't count the number of people in your group, it it isn't great if you go out with six and you come back with five. It (laughs) doesn't really go down well in the marketing materials. So I haven't (laughs) been doing that. Having said that, last weekend we uh, we were having a... Uh, Greenland games up in one of the centres in Northern Ireland and uh, I was getting out to teach Greenland kayaking uh, which I really enjoyed. It's something that I've been doing for 25 years using the the Greenland stick. I'm a firm believer in it even though I'm quite happy to use a Euroblade if I'm teaching but it was great to be able to get out and pass on some of the knowledge of using the Greenland stick and we had great fun at at the games and uh, 
there were rope gymnastics and there was uh, the different roles and there was forward paddling and all that type of thing. And it was a really good weekend. So it was great to be able to go and teach, even though I never thought I would actually speak to a group when I met them that I'm the guy with the guide dog and <laughs> the rules are going to be a little bit different on this trip. But we didn't go very far and nobody got lost. And I think we brought back this, the same number of people we set out with and hopefully they enjoyed it. So. Well, that sounds like a brilliant time. Well, thank you again. It's, it's been wonderful having the opportunity to, to learn about you, learn about your history, uh, talk about Cape Horn and, and New Zealand, paddling Ireland, and, uh, and your sight loss and how you've overcome that. So congratulations, and uh, we will look forward to the opportunity to, to meet in the future. Great, John. I would look forward to that, and thank you. Thank you, Des. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Thank you to Des for joining Paddling the Blue and sharing his story, and thank you Katrina for the connection. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with every guest we have on the show, and Des was a true pleasure. His perseverance and some impressive technology are helping him overcome late-onset retinal degeneration and still getting him on the water. Check out the show notes for this episode, number 102, and we'll have some links in there with information about late-onset retinal degeneration. Thanks again to our partners at OnlineSeaKayaking.com for extending a special offer to you. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com. Take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. Just enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next episode features Natalie Matarova and Mikhail Madera. They were referred to me by Katie Carr. Now, I'm just finishing Katie and Toby's book, Moderate Becoming Good, later, and it's a great read, by the way. And Natalie and Mikhail, as well as several other recent guests and past guests, keep coming up. It's interesting how small our interconnected global paddling community is. Natalie and Mikhail are going to join us to talk about their circumnavigation of the UK and some other paddling adventures. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.